Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, the national free market think tank. Uh, this is episode 90 or 100 something of the podcast. I uh, can't remember episode numbers, but uh, uh, but we're not a new podcast anymore. But for those of you uh, just tuning in for the first time, basically uh, what we do here in the podcast is I uh, uh, in, uh, invite an author on to discuss a uh, book of theirs that's been uh, newly published or recently published uh, on something we uh, we think you guys out there would like to hear a conversation about. And then hopefully, you know, at the end of the podcast or even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers about you, you go ahead and uh, purchase the book yourself and give it a read. So, yeah, if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show. And also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Mr. David E. Hoffman. And uh, Mr. Hoffman is a contributing editor at the Washington Post. And he covered the White House during the presidencies of Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush and was subsequently diplomatic correspondent and Jerusalem correspondent. And then from 1995 to 2001, he served as Moscow bureau chief at the Post and later as foreign editor and assistant managing editor for foreign news. Uh, He is also the author of The Oligarchs, Wealth and Power in the New Russia, The Billion Dollar Spy, a true true story of Cold War espionage and betrayal, and The Dead Hand, the untold story of the Cold War arms race and its dangerous legacy, which won the Pulitzer Prize. And lastly, he is the author of Give Me Liberty, the true story of Oswaldo Paya and his daring quest for a free Cuba, which was published back in June by Simon & Schuster and is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Mr. Hoffman, thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Great to be here. Ah, no problem. So, uh, what made you want to write this book? What was the uh, the genesis of it? I know, uh, and more importantly, who was Oswaldo Paya? Uh, you mentioned in the book uh, that Paya visited the offices of the Post in 2003 uh, after he had won the the Sakharov Prize and was on this sort of international tour. Uh, were you there at the time? Did you actually get to to meet Oswaldo Payá? I was in another room. I did not. Ah, too bad. But I'll tell you, uh, I'll answer those two questions because they're sure. interesting answers. Uh, I was the Moscow bureau chief of the Post, and every once in a while I got a chance to get out of Moscow and go travel in the provinces. And on one of those trips, I had some time to see this uh, house in the woods, this dacha where Andrei Sakharov had written his uh, famous essay, His Reflections. And mm-hmm. I got to thinking, uh, especially uh, being an admirer of Sakharov, and I got to thinking, what does it take to be somebody like that? Because literally millions, tens of millions of people in the Soviet Union saw that it was a dysfunctional um, kind of you know, overly centralized, overly militarized a government, a place where you know consumers were way down on the ladder of of needs and suffered greatly. Uh, that it was a police state. People hauled off in the middle of the night. All lots of people knew all of this, mm-hmm. but one guy stood up to fight it. So you know, I wondered what kind of courage and and determination and inspiration um, and stamina did it take to, to do that. And I think in Oswaldo Paya, we see some of the same kinds of questions because literally all of Cuba 
saw what had happened after Fidel Castro's revolution and how he betrayed his promises of democracy and built a totalitarian state. Um, this was no secret. So it wasn't as if Oswaldo knew something others didn't. But very few, very few, including Oswaldo Paya, stood up to challenge a totalitarian state. And again, I got really interested uh, right after he died when I was assigned to write some about him for the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. I got really interested in sort of the how. You know, how is it this guy who was um, certainly not in... Sakharov was in the elite of Soviet society, right? He is the father of the sure, hydrogen yeah. bomb, but Oswaldo was not. He was a lay Catholic activist, but he was very much sort of a philosopher of the street. You know, he learned his lessons at the at the level of his parish church. And for him to decide that he was going to be the one to take on Castro, to take on the dictatorship, I wanted to know what went into that, you know, what kind of specific things happened to him and how did it work? So that's where I began. And four years later, I think I found some of the answers. Yeah, it's a uh, uh, it's a fantastic book. I mean, the the reporting on it, um, I mean everything. It's just a tremendously, tremendously well done. And uh, part of the reason I was attracted to it when you know I saw uh, that it was you know that had been published and uh, why I reached out to you is uh, I'm I'm part Cuban. Uh, my um, most of the family are. My my great grandparents are okay. So my great great grandfather was a one of the Rough Riders, um, and he was from Minnesota uh, originally, I guess. And then uh, after uh, Spanish American War, he after his discharge because the Rough Riders were just volunteers; they weren't regular army. He went back to Cuba and settled there, and then uh, married my great great. Uh, grandmother, uh, oh, so the that's family. A great story. Yeah, yeah. So uh, my, so they were from Santiago, uh, Santiago de Cuba, down in the southern, uh, the second biggest, largest city in, in Cuba. Um, and they settled there. And my grand, my great great grandfather was apparently a very, uh, <laughs> a tough hombre. I guess he, uh, he was. Uh, he ran like a manganese mine. And I, at some point, he was. Uh, accosted coming home he was a robbery basically and he uh was fighting off three or four guys but apparently had to have his arm amputated because he uh, got uh uh hit with a machete <laughs> so they had to cut his arm off and uh, so he was a tough dude but anyway so my grandmother uh my great-great-grandmother was her people are from spain originally a lot of those in cuba um and then my great grandmother came, and her husband came over here in the, I guess in the 30s, so before Castro. And my grandfather was born here, and then the rest of the family mostly came over after Castro, uh, after the revolution, uh, in the early 60s, except for a few stayed behind. And then one of my great aunts, um, uh, she was an invalid. She actually got shipped over here on uh, Mariel on the boat lift. Um, so, uh, so I guess I'm like a quarter Cuban or yeah. maybe a little less, something like that. But so, but I still, but I, um, and I don't know if, 
I think pretty much everybody left. I don't know if I actually have any family left down there. I probably do, like, you know, distant uh, relatives or something like that. But so I've always uh, sort of, you know, paid attention to what's going on in Cuba, just, you know, because it's sort of family history and everything. So that's really, really why, uh, well, part of the reason why I wanted to uh, read this book and part of it because, you know, uh, you're a great, uh, great writer, you know, you've won Pulitzers and all that sort of stuff. So, so uh, I was really looking forward to it. And, uh, you know, like I said, I wasn't disappointed. Um, so, let me, but it, but, your, let me oh, ask sure. you a question about who, uh, who was Paya. Yeah, sure. I mean, this is a biography. I think people listening to us n- need that answer, right? Uh, Oswaldo Paya came from a middle-class family. His father ran a, small, a business in Havana in the 1950s and 40s. Uh, you know, this was a capitalist mecca in some ways. It was a very unequal society in Cuba at the time, but there was a middle class. Um, his father actually ran kind of a press distribution thing. He had a couple of cars and trucks, and he mm-hmm. distributed newspapers to every kiosk and hotel. Um, and also later, you know, things like bubblegum and stuff like that. And uh, Oswaldo Payao uh, was one of seven children. He was born in 1952. And not long after he was born, 10 days afterwards, there was a coup. And uh, Batista came to power and had a dictatorship that lasted till he was overthrown by Fidel in 1959. And I think that one of the most important factors about Oswaldo Paz he grew up in this particular corner of Havana is that, first of all, he never lived in a free society. He never lived in a state of liberty. Mm-hmm. I mean, it lived in his mind. And you have to wonder, where did he get those ideas? And, you know, when he was a young man, when he was 13 years old, he was standing at the cash register in his father's little sort of warehouse when the militia came and confiscated the whole business. They took his father away in handcuffs because Fidel thought that small businessmen were somehow, you know, against socialism. And Mm -hmm. uh, he witnessed that. It left a big impression when he was uh, a few years later in high school. He was one of a few high school students who openly protested the Warsaw Pact crushing of the Prague Spring. And again, this marked him as a contrarian, as a rebel. And in 69, um, he was when he was just aged to be conscripted in the military, instead of military service, he was sent to Castro's forced labor camps. Um, people don't know, but Fidel Castro had these forced labor camps, and he uh, gave them several different names, but basically they spent a long period cutting cane, and then they were sent to a rock quarry. Mm. Um, After he got out and tried to study physics at the University of Havana, he was forced out, again, because of his views, because he was uh, seen as contrarian. And also you have to realize that Oswaldo grew up in a Roman Catholic family, and uh, Christians in Cuba, especially Catholics, were discriminated against and persecuted by the revolution. Uh, you know, when they went, uh, Oswaldo's family had been going to the same parish church, El Salvador del Mundo, mm-hmm. for four generations. And, um, you know, his mother would lead the kids, or one of his aunt, his aunt would lead the kids to the parish church. They would be, you know, people would throw stones at them, or they would sometimes throw rotten eggs at the 
church doors or they would take a motorcycle, a very loud one, and run circles around the building during mass to <laughs> disrupt it. So there was con- this constant experience of growing yeah. up in a world of pressure, you know, persecution and uh, totalitarian state. And Oswaldo eventually came to a couple of very basic ideas as a young man as this was happening. One is that individuals have a right to rights, that these rights are bestowed by God when you're born and not by Fidel Castro. Also, he thought, you know, people of Cuba have to be the protagonists of their own history and not just the spectators. Hmm. So this idea that everybody has a right to these rights and that nobody should sit around and watch them be crushed began to animate him to some kind of action and change. So my point is that uh, a guy, you know, his day job was working with medical. He was a medical technician. He uh, repaired medical equipment in Havana's hospitals. It was always breaking down. But this wasn't the source of his activism. The source was what he saw every day, what he had seen in his family. That all these years of persecution and repression um, began to add up. And like Sakharov, he had the courage to stand up and do something about it when a lot of other people just tried to keep their head down. Yeah, that, the amazing thing to me, you mentioned his day job, was the fact that you know he had a day job and he was doing... All of his, you know, uh, you know, Proyecto Vera and uh, Valera and uh, all the other things that he was doing to uh, promote democracy in Cuba, basically on his free time, which, <laughs> you know, like he still had like he still had to go up and like, you know, put his pants on and go to work every day for, you know, eight, ten hours. And then um, everything else was just sort of I mean, the rest of his life basically was consumed by. Uh, you know, democracy promotion, but, you know, you think about uh, how hard he worked for that and how much time and effort he put into that. It's amazing he had the the energy and stamina to do it for so many years when he already, you know, had a day, you know, a, a full-time day job. You know what I mean? Like, normally you think something like that would be, uh, you know, basically what your your full-time work is, but, you know, he still had to put food on the table and and uh everything else and it's just a, a, a amazing amount of of uh, the work ethic and the, the 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 energy and the stamina the man had some of this uh inspiration came from his faith yeah. and people often ask me you know how is it that uh catholic faith could have given rise to these really strong feelings of dem- about democracy and i tried to answer that question in the book. When uh, he was a young boy, he joined a youth group at the parish church, and the priest at the time was a fellow named Alfredo Petit. And Father Petit encouraged young people to see this parish church as kind of a temple of freedom, and that whatever they wanted to say, they could say openly inside, under the roof of the church, that they should see their religion as uh, kind of a shield of truth, that that's what the the religion was all about. That And this manifested itself not only in the youth group, but then later when Asfaldo got older, um, after Mass, a bunch of the families would gather in a foyer, and 
in these foyer discussions after mass, they would oftentimes discuss again very openly things like a book that had been smuggled in or a radio broadcast they had heard. And remember, this is a time when the revolution permitted no free discussion. The press hmm. was completely controlled. You could not uh, have these kind of discussions in the open. But but Oswaldo got in his mind that his faith and the idea of liberty were the same. So when he became a little bit older uh, in the mid-1980s, the, the church decided to go through a big process of kind of reflection and re-examination. And one reason that happened is that uh, because of the conferences of Medellin and Puebla, uh, the Catholic Church in Latin America was also undergoing an enormous change. Mm. And the Cuban uh, bishops who had attended Puebla when Pope John Paul was there, they came home thinking, you know, this incredible change in the Catholic Church happening in our region, and we're not part of it. We ha There's nothing there for us because yeah. our pews are empty. Uh, and the ch church in Cuba by this time had been badly hurt by the revolution. Uh, there was far fewer priests than nuns. Uh, persecution had driven believers away. They didn't show. So the bishops decided we have to do something to basically save the Catholic Church in Cuba. And they put uh, Archbishop Jaime Ortega of Havana in charge of this. And by coincidence, I guess, Ortega was the kind of guy he liked to draw upon the laity and was looking around for an assistant, um, somebody to take notes at meetings, you know, set up the meetings and begin this process of some kind of re-examination. And because of a connection that Paya's mother had, um, Jaime Ortega picked Asfaldo Paya to be his assistant. And what Paya saw in this process, which took most of 1984 and 85, was a great deal of restiveness and anxiety among Catholics in Cuba. You know, they went around the island, they, they did some surveys, they had meetings. People really did feel backed into a corner. Mm -hmm. And Ortega wanted to, to draw them out, to get them back, you know, under the nave and, and as active believers again. And so it was all supposed to culminate in a very big conference in February 1986. And at the same time this was going on, Fidel Castro was toying with some kind of rapprochement with the church also, but he was doing that in secret. Ortega knew about that, but he didn't tell anybody. In the preparations for this big conference, Oswaldo Paya and uh, his then fiance, Ophelia Acevedo, decided to write their own little speech to articulate this idea that had been in Asfaldo's head for a long time, that the church should be summoned to reach for its highest values, that it should be a temple of freedom and of liberty. And he wrote this speech out. It was called um, Faith and Justice. And he went to the preliminary meeting with this text in his hand, and he read it out to the group. And Jaime Ortega was at the front of the room, and he just could not believe what he was hearing <laughs> because everything that Oswaldo said what, well, might have been true. Uh, Ortega realized that it would really upset Fidel Castro and challenge the dictatorship and destroy the rapprochement that Ortega was working on. So he actually pounded the table and insisted that uh, Oswaldo Paya's speech not be included in the program, that the whole thing be hushed up. 
And Pyle was stunned, and so was Ophelia, who later became his wife. Um, but they had laid out their principles and been rejected. They went to the conference, and he was allowed to speak from the floor, but his speech, Faith and Justice, was never included in the final report because the ideas were just, uh, at that time, too radical. And Fidel Castro carried out this attempt at rapprochement with Jaime Ortega. Fidel gave a, a long series of interviews to a, a Brazilian priest who published them. A book came out called Fidel and Religion. Huge lines formed because Fidel had never even talked about religion right, before. Sure. So the point is that Oswaldo was an uh, attempt to see liberty and freedom achieved through the vehicle of his faith was a failure. And he then had to find another way forward. Right. And that leads us to the to the Varilla project. Uh, but not so, immediately. Right, not, not immediately, immediately. Right. right. So Oswaldo began to spend a couple of years. This was 1986 that he was rejected. Um, he began to spend a couple of years trying to find a way forward. And I remind everybody that this is the period in which the Soviet Union was going through tumultuous change and also Eastern Europe. And the, it was the period of Gorbachev. It was also the period of Tiananmen, the period of solidarity. So these I, things happening in the world um, mostly smuggled in because they weren't always reported in the official Cuban press. Oswaldo began to uh, absorb some of these things. First of all, he was a big admirer of Lech Valenza and Solidarity. He thought for a while that he could basically model a movement on Solidarity in Cuba, but it didn't work out because the minute he tried to do it, a bunch of the other people got arrested. He also was terribly fearful of violence, that some kind of attempt to create more space for political discussion like was happening in Eastern Europe, um, would erupt in basic chaos. And when Tiananmen Square massacre happened, um, it really, really shook him to his core. And Oswaldo said, you know, we can't achieve liberty through bloodshed. So he had to try and find a way to get change like solidarity and not like Tiananmen. And he wasn't, he was not a political science professor. He was somebody who simply saw very clearly, very acutely what was happening on the streets. And he began to search for how could he do that? How could he mobilize Cubans to demand their rights, to fulfill this idea that they had a right to those rights without um, either being crushed or uh, setting off uncontrollable sort of animal spirits of violence. It took him years. Yeah. And in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, he, he held on to something that he noticed that he had been told about from Cuba's history. Uh, I don't know how many listeners are aware of the fact that Cuba, before the Castro Revolution, was a republic. And uh, it was a republic that had some troubles with dictatorship, but also had a good long period of democracy from 1940 to 1952. And in 1940, Cuba adopted a new constitution. It was the most democratic constitution of its history. And I tell the story in the book a little bit about how this was done. But the most important thing for our purposes right now is that that constitution had a little provision tucked way inside 
that allowed for a citizen initiative that anybody who could get 5,000 signatures, later 10,000 signatures, uh, of citizens verified on a petition to the National Assembly could get legislation proposed and adopted. And this provision was put in there primarily to give people a check against uh, totalitarianism, against dictatorship. There was a dictatorship in the 30s uh, by uh, Machado people. This was a reaction to that. Oswaldo knew that even though Fidel had torn up a lot of the 1940 Constitution when he came to power, he had wrecked a lot of it and destroyed the rights. For reasons that are not clear, Fidel kept this provision in the law. Mm. And I think that it's possible that Castro didn't think in his dictatorship that anybody would ever sign a petition, right? He probably thought no one would ever use it, and nobody had. Well, Oswaldo Paya began to use it because he had this idea, this kernel of an idea that later became the genius of his entire political effort, and that was this. You weren't going to get change in Cuba with guns. You weren't, he didn't want bloodshed. And he also realized that it would be dangerous to form a trade union like Solidarity. It would be too easy to simply crush it. But he said, let's turn the law of the land against the state. Let's use the existing provision in the Constitution, still there, to cause change. He went out and started collecting signatures. Yeah, and the thing, not even, uh, you, you mentioned that Fidel never thought anyone would actually use it uh, because the the initiative, not only did, you know, project uh, the Varela Project take people's names, um, you know, it also took their and addresses, it also took their, but Tim, uh, basically, before, their, basically their social security number, their state, so like yeah, the but even people, before he got to that, even before he got to that, he tried for years. Yeah just to collect signatures for change. And mm-hmm. for a while there, these handbills that he passed out didn't specify what he was asking people to sign for. Yeah. Just, it said, sign a petition for change. Very gauzy, hazy principles. And he got a few hundred signatures. Um, the government attacked him in 1991, right? They came in and smashed his furniture and overturned the table where the signature book was. Um, he tried to run for parliament. That didn't work out. They told him he couldn't run for parliament and, and they prohibited him from doing it. Um, you know, he had a long period of trial and error. Sure. Thinking about how to mobilize people. This is critical because again, he was not some brilliant guy who read in a textbook, you know, how to do democracy. He learned it, uh, on the street, getting his shoes dirty. You know, there was a time when he thought, well, if I just tell people exactly how we'll go from dictatorship to democracy, maybe they'll be for it. He wrote a 46-page transition program. I mean, with, you know, decimal points and sections and extremely detailed. But Tim, nobody read it. People were hungry in the early 1990s after the Soviet collapse. It was a period of great deprivation. People didn't want to read the fine print. So, you know, the signature thing languished because he hadn't found a way to motivate people and to mobilize them. And he didn't find it until 1996. And that's when he had this idea that he was 
had to give people something simple and straightforward they could understand and not long and that they would rally to his side, but he had to communicate it better. Mm-hmm. So he came up with this idea of the Varela Project, named after a very famous Cuban uh, priest and scientist and teacher from the 19th century. And the idea of the Varela Project was to make five demands of the dictatorship for change. Free press, free enterprise, freedom for political prisoners, you know, freedom of expression and association and a few other things. But it was all fit on one piece of paper. Right. And he ended up, it took him a number of years and he had lots of help, but he managed to gather more than the 10,000 signatures. He gathered 11,020 in the first round. And actually yeah, but it took look. four years. Yeah. And, you know, uh, in that second year, when he he really thought of it in 96, he got going in 97, 98. And then Pope John Paul came to Cuba. It was the first time. And in his final homily, the one to this huge crowd in Havana, the Pope said, should be the protagonist of your own history and not the spectators. The same thought that Oswaldo Pio had held I mean, he was ecstatic when he heard this, but it motivated people. People in the square began shouting, Libertad! And the number of signatures zoomed forward. After that, the Varela project took off like a rocket. Yeah, and he, like I said, he, uh, like I said, he had a lot of help. Who were some of the people uh, who helped uh, Osvaldo uh, with this, with these gathering of signatures and uh, what ended up what ended up happening to many of these people after uh, you know the the signatures were returned into the government and you know and what was Fidel's reaction to it? So Oswaldo built um, kind of a secret uh, a, a group that was based on um, local cells. I would say uh, they called them bases, but these were groups of people who were trusted in each town and city of Cuba, um, oftentimes centered on a parish church, uh, 10, 15 people, and they would fan out from there. Each of these people would find 10 people who would sign this petition. This petition with the five demands, the Varela Project, um, asked people to sign their name, um, their address, and give their identification number, as you said. And not only once, but the information had been verified three separate times over the course of the petition, the several years. Why? Because state security, the Cuban secret police, tried to corrupt it. They tried to put fake signatures into the systems so that they could say when Oswaldo was done, you see, they're fake. Well, Oswaldo caught them and figured out what was going on. And he used the system he had created of these bases in in churches to go back again and double check and make sure that all the signatures were verified. So he had a group of people who were quite loyal. He founded a movement. Uh, the movimiento was not a trade union. It was a movement in the Cuban context is basically a group of like-minded people, but it's a very, very uh, sort of invisible organization. It's not something that could state security could easily 
hurt or destroyed, but the movement grew with the Varela Project. Um, at one point, it had a thousand members, and a lot of them were very active in the Varela Project. So when Oswaldo submitted the 11,020 signatures one day to the National Assembly, uh, I think Fidel was shocked. I think that he regarded Paya as kind of just another dissident. There were several. And, you know, someone with a couple of press releases and uh, uh, a lot of hot air. But I think Fidel underestimated him because Oswaldo was not that. He, unlike many other dissidents, he was really out there doing what he said he was going to do, mobilizing people. So I, Fidel had to decide what to do. This was May of 2002 when the first box of signatures was submitted to the National Assembly. And later that year, Oswaldo was given the Sakharov Prize for Freedom of Thought and collected the prize in Europe. And uh, he was on his way home when Fidel decided in early 2003 that he had to basically do something to crush this movement. So Fidel arrested 75 people, about 48 or so were directly working with Oswaldo's project, and the others were independent journalists and activists, and they were all thrown in jail, given sham trials, many of them given long prison sentences, like 25 years, and he didn't arrest Oswaldo Paya. This was a psychological warfare tactic against Paya to, you know, first of all, raise questions like why wasn't he arrested, um, to create suspicion around it, and also to, to torment him that all of his uh, close associates who had worked on this were stuck in jail and he was free. It really uh, was a very yeah, dark time. Sort of like a survivor's guilt. Yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. And it was a very, very hard time for him. Um, he tried to find ways to raise money for the families and uh, to, you know, keep in touch with all of these people. Most of them were in prison for seven or eight years and were finally released in 2010 and 2011, thanks to the intervention of uh, Cardinal, now, now Cardinal Jaime Ortega, the, the leader of the whole uh, church reflection effort that had collided with Oswaldo years before. So it's not um, always that simple in Cuba. There are complexities here. And I think um, Ortega spoke at Oswaldo's funeral, mm -hmm. and that was highly unusual. And again, a sign of his respect for what Paya had tried to accomplish. Talk a little bit about uh, the Cuban uh, state security, the secret police, and, uh, you know, what kind of, I mean, other than obviously, you know, uh, jailing people, what, what kind of tactics uh, would they use to uh, disrupt people, disrupt, uh, uh, you know, Oswaldo and what he was trying to do and uh, those sort of things. And, you know, a lot of this, you know, that they learned, uh, basically firsthand from the, the East German Stasi. Yeah, I tell the story in the book, first of all, about how they learned it. I mean, remember, every police state needs to have a secret police to carry it out, right? And one of the ways you could do it is to simply, you know, carry guns and batons and use coercion and violence to impose a dictatorship. But the interesting thing about the Stasi, the East German secret police, is that after the 1950s, um, they began to think that it would be far more uh, advantageous and easier to try and, you know, be intrusive and discover 
the sources of discontent and dissent before it really got large rather than have to beat people up later. And so the Stasi sort of pioneered this idea. Um, maybe they weren't the whole inventors of it, but they certainly worked hard at coming up with methods of infiltrating every possible corner of the country and so they could spot dissent before it happened. They had a whole system for doing this. I mean, informers everywhere, throughout society, workplaces, apartment buildings. And in the uh, period of the 70s and 80s, they used it quite extensively. And they had a university or shall we say a secret police school in Potsdam, where they trained their own people about how to do this. And in this school, they accepted the guest students from friendly countries. And the Cubans wrote to the East German Stasi and said, we'd like to send one of our guys over to learn your methods of how to infiltrate and control dissent. And they did. And uh, in my in the book, I describe how this officer came. I had the correspondence. I found it all in the Stasi archives about how they had arranged this. And one of the things that the officer studied when he was in the secret police school were these methods of how to find, you know, focus on every family, um, how to find out where the weak points were and create psychological pressures against people um, to single out the people who were possibly going to become dissidents. They had handbooks for how to do this. They had like an 800-page uh, kind of thing you could study. And the Cuban who was there studied it and brought those methods back to Cuba. It was one of the main methods was sort of a psychological warfare called Zersetzung, which sort of means decomposition. And so this was the psychological thing they were going to do. They're going to decomposition of destroying people, smearing them, you know, put, putting false charges against them, just trying to upset anybody who might be different or uh, dissident. And sometimes it involves smearing and contaminating these organizations, or uh, sometimes it would involve exiling people and picking them out and sending them abroad. And all these methods were used by the Stasi against dissidents, and Oswaldo Paya felt the full brunt of it. Almost all the period from when he was a boy, um, you know, when they, people threw stones on the way to church. Um, several times he had near misses. His bike was run off the road. Uh, people would come up to him and say, Paya, you're not going to outlive Fidel. Well, Fidel was in his 80s, you know. Mm. It was pretty scary. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we'll get back to that in a second. But uh, I want to talk about... Um, so after uh, the Varela project uh, comes about, he gets all this uh, international acclaim. Uh, like you said, he was he won the Sakharov Prize. He was nominated for a Nobel, and he went like on that uh, on that sort of uh, publicity tour, I guess you want to call it, in 2003. Uh, but did the the attention of the international community on, uh, or at least the international human rights community? Um, that their attention on Payad did that have any effect on on Cuba and on the the Castro regime? Did, uh, did, was there any sort of uh, response or opening up or any in any sort of way from from Payad's efforts? 
It's hard to say, you know, uh, after the uh, tour that you discussed, really it was only the second time in his life he had been out of Cuba, and he used part of it to try and mend some fences with the exile community in Miami, and mm-hmm. part of it he was in Washington to meet with politicians. And he wasn't the only dissident of his time. Right, right. But he was the only one that had done something like the Varela Project, which was really to take action and not simply to issue press releases. And that made him different. This idea of using the law of the state to cause change, using the law against the state, was really extraordinary and very poorly understood by many in the United States. I mean, the Miami exiles, some of them were critical of Pia in earlier times, saying he was a collaborator with Fidel because he wanted to use the law. And they just didn't understand what Pia was doing, because what Pia was doing was every bit as radical as anything that, you know, could be thought up abroad. Uh, Paya's idea, during the Mariel Boatliff that you mentioned, uh, Mariel was a case in which Cuban-Americans sent boats from Florida to pick up people at the port of Mariel in Cuba in 1980. And, of course, Castro said a lot of them could go. In the end, some 100,000, 125,000 left on these boats. Well, Paya had a lot of cousins in Florida His mother on his mother's side, and they all brought boats, and they said, Aswaldos, we brought the boat. Please come with us. Bring your family to Cuba. And he sort of shocked them. He said, I'm not leaving. They said, what? And he said, it's Fidel that has to leave. Yeah. And he believed all along that changing Cuba has to come from within, not from outside. And that's why I think that uh, when he finally got to Miami in 2003 for this thing and met with some of his critics, there's a little bit of a eye-opening time for them to see that actually he was just he was doing something very radical from within, mm-hmm. and I think from within is today still where we're going to see change in Cuba. So that's one thing that had happened that after the Black Spring, when all 75 people were arrested, um, you know. I really don't think that the the Sakharov Prize itself was the reason that Fidel reacted. It may be the reason that Fidel, that Oswaldo wasn't arrested. Mm-hmm. But, of course, Fidel's crackdown was quite severe, and it went on for years. These guys spent seven or eight years in prison for nothing more than going around with a pencil and paper and asking people to sign. Right, but which, was techni- which was technically legal <laughs> under yeah. the Cuban... I mean, even under the... the uh, under Fidel's yeah, constitution. Fidel's constitution, yes. that was legal. Right. Uh, it was codified in 1976, so, I mean, it's not... Uh, uh, yeah, so, I mean, that's crazy. But um, uh, speaking of... You, you mentioned him not leaving after, you know, his family comes from Mariel, and, uh, uh, you know, that's also kind of like not... Uh, it, not entirely his decision because it's uh, it's also his wife Ophelia's decision too. They made a uh, a pact with each other or uh, whatever you want to call it, an oath that uh, their children would grow up in a free Cuba. Um, but talk a little bit about, about Ophelia because uh, she's such an important part of his story uh, because you know she supports him in you know on all his endeavors she doesn't um you know she's not clamoring to leave to get to to get to florida or get to spain or elsewhere in the caribbean uh, you know uh, she understands what that uh, life of being uh like uh, he says he's not a dissident because dissidents are uh 
you know, former supporters or whatever, but uh, she knows what the life of uh, someone going against the party, uh, what that's going to mean for them and their family and their children. And she agrees to, you know, uh, to go along with that. And so, so tell a little bit about uh, Ophelia because she's uh, remarkable in her own way. Uh, Ophelia came from a family that was, in its own thinking, also like Oswaldo's, very democratic. Um, and uh, her father, uh, certainly at the dinner table, would would had very had democratic values. And she was uh, an engineer. She had studied engineering. When she met Oswaldo, she was attracted by his sort of fiery individualism and many of his ideas. She went through that whole experience with the church uh, reflection and being rejected there. She was there the day he gave the speech. In fact, she helped him write that speech, Faith and Justice. And they left together when they were stunned. And um, they were married in 1986, later that year. And I think Ophelia is sort of the silent presence here. She certainly understood and supported much um, all of this uh, effort he had made over the years. They had three children. And I think finally by the period after the Black Spring, Oswaldo was then sort of more of an elder statesman among Cuban dissidents, you know, and uh, there were younger ones who were coming up. Um, Some bloggers were getting more attention at the time. And I think Ophelia um, understood that, you know, he had things that he had to do, but both of them still felt the sting of this pressure from state security. And it's quite possible, it seems to me, that Castro had never forgiven Paya and never forgotten um, the Varela project. So even, you know, eight or nine years later, they were still getting death threats. And uh, Paya told visiting diplomats about this. I I put this in the book about one diplomat in 2006, you know, Paya says, I think you underestimate that they're going to liquidate me. And he was worried about this constantly until it really got intense um, in 2011, 2012. And so remember, at this time, he's in his late 50s. He's been doing this a, w- a while. There are new and younger distance, but they're still coming after him. Mm-hmm. And I think this worried Ophelia terribly. I know it did. It worried both of them. They had vowed to each other to raise their children in a free Cuba, to strive for that the whole lives. Everything they lived for was to keep fighting. But at some point they decided um, at least for the children they had to send them abroad. Yeah. And then uh, I said, we get to 2012 and uh, there is the automobile accident or no accident. No, no accident right. But, uh, you know, quote unquote accident, the crash, uh, the crash that is going to, uh, take his life um tell us a little bit how uh oswaldo met his demise and um you know uh what the official cuban uh the official cuban governments uh uh what they said happened in the accident and what most likely really happened i mean we're never going to know 100 percent for sure uh but you know uh the person driving the car passenger in the car were are still with us um and uh so just tell everyone how uh his end came you have to understand the context of this is that 
Oswaldo and Ophelia were constantly under pressure and received death threats. And the threat uh, uh, at the time, Fidel Castro was sick and ailing in his 80s. And uh, guys who Oswaldo didn't know would come up to him, just right up to him in the street and say, you won't outlive Fidel. Mm -hmm. So he and Ophelia decided to send their two older children abroad um, they got they got admitted to uh, U- University of Amsterdam, and they were getting ready to go in um, the summer. They're probably going to leave in August of 2012. Um, Oswaldo uh, had previously um, he had a Volkswagen bus kind of held together with bubble gum and bailing wire. <laughs> he drove around Havana, and one day out of the blue. Uh, somebody ran a red light and hit him and knocked the bus over on its side. He had to be extracted from it through the windshield. And Ophelia was in the front also. It was quite scary. And it's quite clear to me that this person was prompted to do this, to hit the thing. Um, It was kind of a message. It's a good thing they weren't badly hurt, but it was a message. So in July of 2012, uh, Swaldo was going to do some more political organizing in the town of your ancestors, Santiago de Cuba. And he was going to go there to train some young people about democracy and also to, to energize his network. But he couldn't just like get on a bus or a plane or a train. All the public transportation was guarded. There were informers. Anytime he tried to buy a ticket, um, state security would show up and obviously interfere, prevent him from going. So he had to find a clandestine way to get around Cuba. But he, he had figured one out. It was that periodically these uh, activists from abroad would come and rent a rental car, a tourist rental car, and drive around Cuba. And he would sit in the back seat. And oftentimes it would take days for state security to figure out where he was. It was a pretty good method. And in the past, this group of uh, Swedish activists had come Well, I think for at least 10, 12 years, they've been doing this. They would make a trip once a year and drive Oswaldo around. It was was useful for him. So this time, the activists arrived in Cuba um, a few days early, earlier than he had expected. There was a little bit of a rush to get to Santiago de Cuba because the big holiday was coming, and he knew on this holiday, um, which commemorated Fidel's guerrilla attack on the Moncada barracks. He knew they'd be looking for anything unusual. So he wanted to get to Santiago and back before the holiday. So he said, you know, let's rush it. Let's go tomorrow night. There was a Spaniard, Angu Caramero. He was the driver of the rental car. And there was a Swede, uh, Aaron Modig, who was in the passenger seat up front. They picked up Oswaldo. uh, And Oswaldo was accompanied by a protege, Harold Sapero. Uh, a young man who'd been studying closely how Oswaldo worked was really his right-hand man at the time. And uh, Harold was uh, much younger, but Oswaldo had great hopes that he could someday do the same thing. So they get in the car 6 a.m. on July 12th, 22nd. And they um, it's a Sunday. The, the roads are practically empty. And the uh, Spaniard Caramero's at the wheel. And they drive and they drive and drive and for hours and hours. It takes a long time to drive across Cuba at 
given the condition of the roads. And this was kind of a sluggish rental car, Hyundai. They got got to the middle of the island at midday. They had a sandwich um, in Camaway, and then they headed on. And they had passed through the town of Las Tunas, and they were headed for Bayamo. Um, there had been a couple of times during the trip when Angle, the driver, had seen somebody following them at a distance. Um, one time, the followers peeled off at a gas station. But suddenly, on a kind of lonely stretch of the country road, um, a car began to follow them very closely. And Caramaro saw that this car had uh, state license plates. He could tell that from the color. And it moved closer and closer. And Caramaro was, I think, probably doing about 50 or 55 miles an hour at the time. Um, we can judge how far they had come in how many hours by the timestamps on a photograph that they took at lunch. So let's say he was doing 50. Well, the car behind him started to speed up and rammed them from behind. This wasn't a collision. This was just a big shove, but it caused Caramaro to lose control of the Hyundai, which began to skid across gravel. Now, the official Cuban story is that the car hit a tree, and in that side of the car where Oswaldo was sitting, it smashed in and killed him. I'm not sure what actually happened there because there's a lot of odd things about it. Um, Modig, the Swede sitting on the far side, was knocked unconscious. Um, when he awoke, he was hustled off in an ambulance. And Caramaro uh, recalls that as soon as he sort of awoke from a very brief period, he too was being hustled away to a blue van by guys he had never seen before. Where did they come from? This was a remote country road. Um, Caramaro doesn't remember much about what was behind him in the car, but um, I think there's a, some telltale clues. While uh, Modi was in the ambulance on the way to the hospital, he sent text messages saying we were hit from behind. So the most important fact here that we know is true is they were rammed from behind and lost control of the car. Sometime that day, Oswaldo Paya and Harold Sapero died. And I think that the, the circumstances of exactly how they died are a little bit, uh, well, they're very unclear and highly suspicious. Uh, it's possible that the car did hit a tree, or it's also possible they survived that and that some they were murdered later. I think... It, What's most telling is that Caramaro was charged by the police um, with reckless driving and having caused the accident. And in, there was a trial. And in the trial, the prosecution didn't say anything about the car being hit from behind. They whitewashed it. The official Cuban trial completely whitewashed the fact that a Cuban state vehicle rammed this car from behind and caused them to lose control. Now, Caramaro, um, he was the guy on trial, right? Mm -hmm. He also decided not to raise it. Uh, I think it was a decision that um, you could take issue with, but in his case, he was scared to death that he'd have sure. to spend the rest of his life in a Cuban prison. His lawyers told him that if he didn't raise it, he might uh, be able to get off and get home. So neither he nor Modig raised this fact, but they 
of course, had sent text messages. It's the truth. The car was ran from behind, and that was whitewashed from the trial. So tell me, why did the Cubans have to whitewash that from the trial? Because they rammed the car that led to Oswaldo's death. So uh, that's what I could find out. Um, I looked at the trial records. I talked to both Modig and Caramero at great length. Um, I feel that this was an assassination. Mm. All right. So um, in the decade, in the intervening decade uh, from we've already, I've already kept you about an hour. So um, we'll start wrapping up. Uh, so the intervening decade since Oswaldo's death uh, in 2012. So, uh, so where does, where does Cuba stand now? Obviously, uh, you know, Fidel has died. Uh, Raul is uh, more ruthless and uh, more doctrinaire Marxist uh, brother took over, but now Raul is, uh, Raul's in his nineties. He's basically uh, retired where, um, where does the regime stand? Where does Cuba stand uh, now in 2022, 10 years after uh, the death of Oswaldo Paya? Tim, two things. First of all, as I described, uh, Oswaldo Paya's methods of mobilizing people were a pencil and a paper and, you know, shoe leather, going door to door asking mm -hmm. people to sign a petition. He didn't have an iPhone. He didn't have text messaging or the internet. He had none of the tools that are available for mobilizing today. And today those tools play an important factor in the way Cubans express themselves and dissent. The amount of protests and dissent in Cuba is growing and it's becoming much more demonstrative. Cubans have lost their fear of state security. Almost every night now in Cuba, there's a town that breaks out into protest and I think it's interesting that, first of all, um, when Oswaldo Pio talked about his movement, uh, he often talked about liberation. And liberation was this idea that, you know, rights are something inviolate that we're given by God and not by Fidel. And he, liberation, he held up his thumb and forefinger in an L for liberation. You see this in a lot of the pictures, especially during the Black Spring. Today, on the streets of Cuba in these protests, you still see people holding up a thumb and forefinger in an L for liberation. So the ideas are the same. The methods have changed remarkably. In the 20 years since the Varela Project, uh, Cubans have become completely connected with each other online. And in July of 2021, uh, they began to uh, protest in the streets of one of these small towns outside of Havana, uh, and one of the guys on the street, a young man, uh, picked up his phone with uh, Facebook Live on and began to stream the picture of these people protesting. Um, at the time, they were protesting lack of food and hunger, and uh, at the time, the pandemic was a big deal. There were no vaccines, even though Cuba had some, but they were protesting. Video went viral, absolutely viral that day across the island. People turned out in cities up and down the island. Maybe 100,000 people were on the streets protesting. It was July 11th, 2021. All of it accelerated and amplified by the online connections that Oswaldo didn't have 
in his day. So his ideas live on. The methods are changing. Cuba's methods in response have not changed. More than a thousand people are in jail today in Cuba for simply having gone on the streets on July 11th. Can you imagine? A thousand people are just sitting in prison for having just decided to speak their minds and to do what Oswaldo urged them to do, to have no fear and to claim their rights. And these protests are going on even last night. They're still happening, although not as big. But in individual cities, just break out because, to be honest with you, the government hasn't delivered. The promise of the revolution is sundered by hunger. There are food shortages. There are electrical blackouts rolling across the island constantly. Um, People are fed up, and now they're getting angry, and we're beginning to see it. I don't think Oswaldo Paya ever had mass protest as one of his favorite methods. He'd much Mm. rather have a more sort of organized Varela project, signatures and a transition, and he had a 46-page plan for it. Um, But what's happening is that people are, are... just breaking out with anger uh, about a system and a government that has failed them. And they are using the language and the symbols that Paya brought to them 20 years ago. Yeah, I know he was adamantly opposed to any sort of uh, violent form of of revolution. Uh, But do you think that's something that's going to have to in some way, shape, or form, for the Cubans to to uh, get rid of the revolutionary regime, that it's going to, you know, something like the collapse of the Soviet Union and uh, you know, and the 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 Warsaw Pact, uh, you know, the Eastern Bloc uh, communist uh, dictatorships, you know, relatively bloodless. Uh, that's something that seems sort of almost unique in history uh, when it comes to, you know, regime change like that. Um, do you think there's, it's going to have to take some form of, of violent opposition for the people of Cuba to uh, finally be free? I don't want to predict violence and I hope it's not, but I can tell you this. Um, I remember Soviet Union in 1990 and 91, um, those long dark winters, Shelves were barren, people were desperate, and of course, ultimately, it collapsed from within. Mm. And if you are in Cuba today, shelves are barren. People are hungry and angry and have lost their fear. And I feel that uh, Cuba is today where the Soviet Union was in its last legs. That things have stagnated, the revolution has not provided, and uh, people are getting more and more uh, courageous about going out and saying we want a different system we want a better life look the outflow from cuba in the past year has far surpassed the marielle boatliff yeah you know cubans are showing up at our borders and daring to cross the florida straits on rickety boats you know why because there's no hope left And they're coming here because we offer hope and also, uh, you know, a chance to at least survive. So I think the situation in Cuba is dire and uh, people are more and more willing to sort of express this deep-seated kind of unhappiness that Oswaldo tapped into 20 years ago. They're not just signing petitions. Mm -hmm. Right. 
Okay. All right. Well, uh, like I said, I already kept you in over an hour, so we went a long. But uh, just wrap it up, I guess, on the, the one question I normally ask everybody that comes on here uh, to end things, and that's, uh, you know, basically what uh, what would you like the audience to get out of this book? Or, you know, what's the, what's the one thing you'd want a reader to take away from having read it? All over the world right now, there is an intensifying contest between democracy and dictatorship. Um, I'm surprised myself as a writer at the Washington Post how rapidly this uh, has developed into a really global uh, kind of, I would say, a crisis. Democracy has been pushed on the back foot. You know, China, which 10 or 15 years ago, where they were speaking of a peaceful rise. Now Xi Jinping is going to be given a third term. And, of course, it's a dictatorship. Uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin has just gone insane with this uh, attack on Ukraine, and it has led to the destruction of any vestige of democracy in Cuba, I mean, in Russia itself. And then, you know, look around. Egypt, Turkey, Venezuela, um, other places. That, Iran. The, yeah, Saudi Arabia. Democracy is just uh, really in a very, very dark space right now. And I think that if people care about this uh, real serious crisis, here is a story of one man's fight for democracy, what it took, how he went about it, how he thought about it. And to me, this is really the kind of story that tells us about everything that's going on in the world today. Oh, uh, sorry, one more thing, one real quickly, and uh, feel free to say no if you don't want to uh, give away anything. But is there are there any plans to uh, underway to get the the book translated and uh, get copies over uh, into Cuba for uh, Cuban people to you know be able to read uh, for themselves? Because it's not just a biography of uh, I want to say the book is not just a simply a biography of Oswaldo Payal. I mean the first section of the book really is a uh, basically a short history of of Cuba, of Cuban democracy, from uh, you know, from independence up until uh, up until the the Batista coup, and then the uh, the, the uh, revolution, uh, the Fidel's revolution in 1959 or 58, uh, that takes power in 59. Um, so, like, yeah, is there any uh, any plans to to do that? And if you don't want to <laughs> don't want to say anything, uh, you know, don't uh, to don't want to announce that. Uh, that that's happening yeah you know feel free to say no but uh, uh no Tim, i'm happy to answer i'm working <laughs> on it i don't have a contract yet okay cool all right well uh i hope we can get that to happen that would be uh, really really great again the uh the book um uh, the book is give me liberty the true story of oswaldo paya and his daring quest for a free cuba um fantastic book like i said not just the biography of, of paya who is a an extraordinary man, but also, uh, like I said, a, a sort of a brief history of uh, of Cuba uh, since its independence from Spain in the uh, very late in the 19th century, and uh, just a, a tremendously uh, well-written narrative. Uh, the reporting on it is uh, fantastic. If you're one of those people. One of those weird people like me who likes to uh, sift through uh, footnotes and endnotes and everything. There's uh, probably uh, God over a hundred pages of notes for you to check out, and uh, and it's a 
And it's a handsome book too. I, I really like the uh, the color scheme. Like it looks like the uh, Cuban flag with the red spine and then the and then the, the blue cover. I really uh, thanks. That was, that was a nice touch. You, you know, I have friends who are fighting democracy in Belarus. They had an underground theater where they would put on subversive productions. You know, for democracy. They, if you hear the stories about Cuba, Belarus, um, uh, other places where this fight is going on in China and Russia, uh, there are a hundred pias fighting. For the values we care about. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. why that's why this is so important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and again, the name of the book: "Give Me Liberty: The True Story of Oswaldo Paya and His Daring Quest for a Free Cuba." And my guest today, again, Mr. David Hoffman. So, uh, Mr. Hoffman, thank you, thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast and discussing the book and discussing Oswaldo Paya with me. I really, uh, really, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Oh, no problem. And again, if you like this podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review and sharing with your friends. And if you have books you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast or, you know, any questions, comments, anything like that, you can reach out to me at tbensonandheartland.org. That's a T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And we also have uh, our Twitter account for the uh, for the podcast. You can, you know... Reach out to us there, too, if you have any questions, comments, whatever. Feel free to send us a DM or give us a follow and all that stuff. Our Twitter handle is at illbooks, at I-L-L books. So yeah, make sure you check that out. And uh, that's pretty much it. So uh, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye-bye. Dos gardenias para ti, con ella quiero decir, te quiero, te adoro, mi vida. Ponle todas tu atención, que serán tu corazón y el mío. Dos gardenias para ti. Que tendrán todo el calor de un beso De esos besos que te di y que jamás te encontrarán En el calor de otro querer A tu lado vivirán y se hablarán Como cuando estás conmigo Y hasta creerán que se dirán, te quiero. Pero si un atardecer las gardenias de mi amor se mueren, es porque han adivinado que tu amor me ha traicionado porque existe otro querer.
las gardenias de mi amor se mueren es porque han adivinado que tu amor me ha traicionado porque existe otro querer es porque han adivinado que tu amor me ha traicionado porque existe otro querer 